Hear the word of the Lord from Romans 1, 24 through 32. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. I love my brother Jesse. There's a lot of things to love about him, but one of the things that he always reminds me of is real men don't always have to be tough and hard. There's things that should soften us, right? And one of those things is when we see the truths of God's word. So I'm thankful for what's already happened there this morning, but we got to go because I'm not quite sure where the Lord's going to go today. But if you, um, well, good morning again. I forgot. We Good morning again. Welcome to Sacred City Church. Um, if you haven't met me yet, my name's Alex Reguela. I'm one of the, the pastors here at, at Sacred City, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, pastor Justin, our um, primary preaching pastor, is on sabbatical, and Pastor Rob, who's going to be filling in for him um, for much of the summer, both looked at this text, and then they left, and they said, go ahead, go ahead and, and take it. But it's my pleasure to be here with you this morning to, to do this. Um, if you are joining us for the first time, we're, we're currently in the, in the last week of a, a sermon series um, on Paul, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, it's our hope and prayer that we're going to preach through the entire book of Romans in the life of this church, but we're breaking it up into to smaller chunks because of its depth and of its heaviness. Our, our favorite way to preach here Although we do do topical sermons from time to time, our favorite way is to preach verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. And we're going to thankfully do that for much of this year. But we like to do that because we believe that that's the way to stay the most faithful to God's Word, to actually preach the whole counsel of God like the Bible tells us. But it also keeps us from avoiding difficult texts, like the one that we have this morning. I want to be very honest with you this morning. This is one of the most sobering texts in all of Scripture, and I believe it's probably the heaviest text that I've ever preached in my short time of actually being a preacher. Paul doesn't mess around in Scripture today. 
As one of my favorite preachers and teachers, Steve Austin, likes to say when the Bible doesn't mess around, this is big boy football, he says. This isn't Pop Warner, this isn't high school, this is NFL. It's UFC level for the fight fans out there, not some local cage fight that Pastor Justin likes to brag about doing at one time in his life. (laughs) This is the real deal. What we get to see here this morning is the worst thing that can happen to a human being, to a culture, to a nation, to the entire cosmos, and that's being abandoned by the triune God. Now, I think we as Christians probably know enough about God's word to recognize and agree that being abandoned by the triune God would be a terrible thing. But for most of us, my guess is that that's just a general understanding. It's maybe even imaginary, right? We can only imagine what that's like. We don't quite know what it means. We don't quite know what it looks like. Well, the Apostle Paul here this morning clears much of that up for us. We are going to see, what we're going to see is that we've been living, actually, in a society that has been abandoned by God. And the intensity of that abandonment continues on a daily basis, and most of us have probably noticed this accelerated over the past couple years with no end in sight, unless change happens. That change is what we talked about in our previous series when we preached through Ezra. We talked about Christianizing our society which is new for many of us and probably a little surprising, but that's the answer. We live in a country where the culture was much more dominated by Christian morals and ethics and values in its past than it is now. That means a society that's Christian is possible, but it needs to be rebuilt. We talked in Ezra about how God's people were rebuilding a society back then. They were rebuilding it from the ruins we learned that the way to rebuild from the ruins was to establish proper worship, engage in that proper worship, and then from that worship, as God's people were being changed by it, they would go out into the society and continue that worship as they lived their everyday lives. They would obey God's word in everything that they did, how they set up government and how that government functioned, how they set up businesses, how those businesses functioned who they married, and how they functioned in those marriages, how they raised their kids, how they treated their bodies, how they treated their animals, their homes, their property, everything in life, you name it, they went back to the word of God for that answer. That's what Ezra's main purpose was as one of the leaders and teachers of God's people, to teach people what the word of God said and what it meant for their everyday lives. So for us, we could say we want to follow Jesus in all of life, which also starts with worship. We need a new heart, the Bible tells us, and we need faith in Christ alone before that can happen. Then we also need to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ to worship him, be caught up into the heavenly places here on a Sunday morning, then be sent out into the society to live as a people who have met with the God of Scripture and are being changed by him. Right? It doesn't mean that we go to church on a Sunday, you know, to to praise and worship, then let the world or the culture determine how we do the rest of our life. No, it means knowing what Christ says about the rest of our life. If he has something to say about it, then as Christians, we should want to know what he says. We should want to do what he says, 
and we should want to love to do what he says. Then as we're doing that faithfully in our lives, in our own families, and as a church family, as we're living as disciples of Christ together in this life, we as the body of Christ have been given one job. Be fruitful and multiply is the Old Testament way of saying it. The New Testament way of saying it is disciple the nations, disciple the society, baptizing the people and teaching them to observe all that what? All that Christ has taught. Teach them to obey Christ in their everyday lives. Literally teach them what we are already striving to do with no doubt that it's the right way to do things, with no hesitancy that Christ's way is the best way for everyone and for everything in this life. If by God's grace, Christians and the church were to do this, the nations would be discipled. Our society would be Christianized. Now, I wish that I could talk more about that in detail because I believe and I'm optimistic that that is going to happen one day. But today, we see the opposite of that. We see what happens when a society of people don't go in the direction of being Christianized, rather the direction of being de-Christianized or paganized or secular humanized, we may say in our day. A lot of it should sound familiar to us because, again, we see much of it playing out in our society we currently live in. So let me pray because we're going to need it, and then we'll dive in. Father God, we thank you for this morning. You know, as we've already said, we thank you that you call us into worship, and we thank you that you call us into your presence to do that worship, Lord, and you change us with that. Lord, you tell us you change us by worshiping you. We become like what we worship. Lord, so help us to do that today. Lord, we want to, this to be proper worship of you. Lord, I don't want to say anything that's not of you, I don't want these people to hear anything that's not of you. So help us in that, Lord. Be with them as they listen. Be with me as I preach. Let this be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so our passage starts in verse 24, as Gretchen read. So if you want to open up your Bibles, um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles in the back. If you have a phone, you can open up your app to Romans chapter 1, verse 24. But while you're doing that, I first want to remind us of what we learned last week with Pastor Rob. Coming off this amazing and powerful word from Paul, a truth that's, been, that's radically impacted a lot of the giants of the Christian faith throughout church history. We can look at Augustine and Luther, Wesley, and, and many other men. That truth was, for it, that's the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, that's a righteousness that is alien to us, like Martin Luther said. It's not of our own. It's the righteousness of Christ that comes through the gospel to men by belief, by faith. Paul then says, for the wrath of God, so something else is now going to be revealed, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So men are unrighteous and can't unrighteous themselves in any way. God is not going to ignore that unrighteousness. He's not apathetic to it or indifferent towards it. Paul tells us here that God's holy wrath comes against it. That's terrifying. 
And if it's not terrifying to you, then you are going to have a very difficult time understanding how the gospel is the power of God for salvation and a difficult time receiving it as necessary for you, for others, and for the culture. We also learn that it's a just wrath that God brings down. Not that we have to justify it. If God says something is right, then that's what's right. But God says that these men have no excuse because they have suppressed the knowledge of God. They reject it. They nonstop hold it back. They hold it down. They don't want it to be true. And as we'll see today, that's because they don't want to worship and serve the one true and living God. Rather, they want to worship and serve lesser gods, including themselves. That's the whole deal. Why does our society look the way that it does? Because people suppress the truth about God and exchange worship of Him for worship of something else. There's no middle ground. We either worship Christ or we worship something else. One is the Creator and everything else is not. One is the true, good, and beautiful thing to worship and anything else is not. So that was the explanation of why God's wrath comes down on people and societies. They don't worship and serve him. They don't acknowledge him and give him thanks. But as we move into verse 24, we see what his wrath looks like. So let's read verse 24. Therefore, that's because they've suppressed the knowledge of God, because they worship something else, and they don't worship Christ. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. I mentioned in the intro that we get to see today the worst thing that can happen to the created order, and that was God's abandonment. Well, this is where we see it. This phrase, God gave them up. Now, it's tough to communicate the weight of this phrase. Many teachers want to communicate it as if God is just kind of letting go of these people. You know the whole C.S. Lewis quote where he says there's two types of people. One type of person says to God, thy will be done. The other type of person, God says to them, thy will be done. God will eventually give people what they want if they reject him and his ways. And there is truth to this. And it actually shows us a significant yet unknown theological truth about God. God being the creator and sustainer of all things is totally in control of everything that happens. Nothing is outside, nothing can happen outside of his decretive will. And the only reason more sin and more evil doesn't manifest in our lives and in this world is because he doesn't want it to. He restrains it. He doesn't allow it to happen. So what we see here in this text is God removing his restraining power. It's like a dam. A dam has the power to stop the raging and rushing waters from moving forward and potentially causing chaos. If a dam were to be accidentally opened or destroyed, what would happen? Chaos would happen. The potential chaos that is always present in those waters would be released as actual chaos its destructive power could manifest. So that's here in this phrase. That's what God giving these people up who reject him and worship and serve another God means. The potential destruction and the chaos that's always present in sinful people is released when God gives people up 
but that's actually not weighty enough for this phrase. This phrase Paul uses here is meant to communicate that God not only releases them, but he throws them forward. He gives them a push. Have you ever went sledding when your kids are too small that they're not heavy enough to get the sled going down the hill? They just sit there frozen at the top, not able to go anywhere because they're not heavy enough. What do you have to do? You have to give them a push. You have to push them down the hill. That's the imagery here, which again is absolutely terrifying. It's like God says, if you want it your way, which is going to come with all kinds of pain and suffering and darkness and evil and disease and decay, I'm not only going to let you try it, but I'm not going to let you go at your own pace. I'm going to push you down that hill at a speed that you're going to have no control over. Again, big boy football. There's no way of softening what the Bible says here. God gives these people up. God gives them up, but remember who the them is. It's the people who suppress the knowledge of God in their unrighteousness, specifically speaking about non-believers in Rome, people who were outside of God's chosen people. We could say now it's people who are outside of the church, the greater society. But let's look at what God gave them up to. What happens when the waters are released and God pushes them forward? Verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. There it is again, the evil, the debauchery, that we are going to see in these verses manifest because it's first where? In their hearts. Heart in the Bible usually refers to the a person's full faculties, everything in them, their mind, their will, their emotions. God, even though he gives them a push, didn't have to implant anything in them to make them choose evil, right? He didn't have to upload some virus into their hearts to make them go the wrong way. What was going to come out, the chaos that was going to come out, was already there. Now, what did their hearts desire? What did they lust after? Impurity, it says. Think sexual impurity, filthiness, disgusting behavior, and a dishonoring of their bodies. That's right, God gets to decide what's pure. God gets to decide what should be done with our bodies. We don't get to decide that. The culture doesn't get to decide that. The civil government doesn't get to decide that. God does, and he reveals that to us here in his word. Very soon, he's going to get specific with what he means by that. But first, he doesn't want them, doesn't want his readers to forget why. Why did God give them up? Why did he abandon them? Verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. These people, again, weren't coming from ignorance. They weren't coming in blind. 
They were coming in with the truth about God, the truth that he's real, the truth that he's all-powerful. But instead of submitting to him and worshiping him, the only one worthy of worship, and let's not forget the best possible thing, anything that's been created can worship. That's what Paul is doing here with this ending and saying, God is blessed forever, amen. He's reminding his listeners of who God is and what he's like and that he's worthy of their worship. Instead of worshiping that God, they decided to go with fly and worship lesser things. Verse 26, we see for the second time, Paul uses this God gave them up phrase. Anytime you see something repeated in a passage, it should grab our attention. Paul is wanting to emphasize whatever he is repeating. Again, God giving these people up, God abandoning these people. We'll see it a third time in a bit. Verse 26 and 27, this is where he gets specific. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Man, so much could be said here. And we're going to get into a couple important things in those two verses. But before we get there, don't miss this. This is what we have to see. What we're going to see these people doing is what happens when God gives a people up, when God abandons a society. So what we need to see is with these sinful things that he's going to lay out here is that they are not just sin that deserves judgment and will receive eternal judgment if not repented of, but they are also God's judgment itself. The sin that runs rampant in our society, the evil that we hear about on a daily basis is part of God's judgment of a people. A significant aspect of how God judges evil in manifestations of sin is to give people, to give cultures, to give societies over to more of that sin, to greater depths of that sin. Now, that's what we see in the remainder of these verses. Paul describes a people, a collective. Again, this is group speak here. And it's a people, again, who are not believers, who have not been converted to Christ. So just think, how far can this death spiral go without the grace of God? Think about how far it can go. Back to verses 26 and 27 for a couple important things. Paul uses the phrase dishonorable passions to describe what God gave them up to. And then he explains in the rest of 26 and 27 what he means by that. And what he's describing is clear. To use more of Steve Lawson, a blind man with his Bible closed could see this text clearly. These verses are describing sodomy, which is the biblical word for homosexual behavior. They're describing sexual passions, sexual lusts, for a person of the same sex and then sexual acts with a person of the same sex. This can't be explained away as anything else, which many people try to do. If you're not familiar, the Bible does speak about homosexuality. Now, some claim that it doesn't speak very loudly about it, so therefore we as Christians shouldn't either, but I think Paul would disagree with these people's analysis of his letter here. Just so that we are clear, 
based off of these verses, the Bible doesn't support homosexuality, not desires, not passions, not behavior. As Christians, we shouldn't either. The Bible doesn't celebrate homosexuality. We shouldn't either. And the Bible doesn't ignore the sin of homosexuality. We shouldn't either. We shouldn't support it. We shouldn't celebrate it. We shouldn't ignore it. Rather, we should be on the offensive against it. I'll explain what I mean by that in a little bit. But we shouldn't be against it. This is big. We shouldn't be against it because people in homosexual sin are in subway subhuman. We shouldn't be against it because people in homosexual sin are the enemy. We shouldn't be against it because somehow they're unworthy of God-given rights. Instead, because just like he is with all sexual immorality, we should be against it because God is against it. And we as Christians should be against it because we should be against everything that God is against. That's part of loving him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength but also because we've been called to love our neighbor as ourself. We've been called to be out for others' good, to be out for their flourishing. Well, look at how Paul ends verse 27. He says these people will receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. Does supporting, celebrating, or ignoring something that leads to the due penalty from God sound like loving our neighbor? Is that how we go about promoting their flourishing? No. Church, we should want so much more for these people than comfort. Have we ever thought about how hard it has to be to struggle with homosexuality? It's getting more and more difficult to have that perspective because of the arrogance and the pride that comes from some in the homosexual community. And I'm in no way trying to excuse them or excuse their sin. They're culpable for their sin. But these people are in bondage. They're imprisoned. I know many of them wouldn't like that language. And I'm in no way trying to attack anyone with that language. I'm only trying to follow Paul's thinking in this text, these people who are created in the image of God, that have value and dignity and worth, they have these desires, these lusts, these burning passions, but for the longest time in this country, because of cultural pressure, some of it good, but some of it very wicked, had to try in their own strength to keep those desires suppressed, right? They had to hide them. They had to keep them in the closet. That's uncomfortable. That's hard. That's impossible. Now that, to use Martin Luther's illustration, was falling off on one side of the horse. Right? That's the wrong response to their desires. But now, in response to that, many, and I would say our culture as a whole, has fallen off on the other side of the horse and freely come out into the light and fight for their sin to not only be accepted, but to be celebrated. Also, the wrong response to their desires. And most people's response to this way, this new way, falling off on the other side of the horse is to say, darn right, they deserve to be comfortable. They deserve to be happy. They deserve to follow their desires. But why do we respond that way? It's not because it's right. I believe it's because most of us are about comfort and when someone is uncomfortable in any way, 
we want to do whatever we can do to not be part of them being uncomfortable, to not be part of their discomfort. Church, comfort is not what these people need. Comfort is not what we should hope for them. They need the comforter. They need to be on the horse, not off on either side. They need to confess with their mouth and believe in their hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the only one that can do anything that's necessary for the sinful desires that they have. That's the first thing. Second thing, Paul's use of this homosexual relation here really debunks the popular notion even amongst many Christians and Christians that have been part of our church even in the past, that homosexuality is just a sin and all sins are the same. And since all sins are the same, it's wrong to highlight any sin over another. And I understand that thought. I understand that line of thinking. It's typically because they themselves struggle with homosexual passions or they have close family members or friends that are homosexuals. And because of this personal and emotional attachment, we allow our feelings to become our highest authority instead of the word of God. But God's word doesn't teach that homosexuality is just a simple sin, nor does it teach that all sins are equal. It does teach that all sins are equal in terms of all sin, regardless of type or significance, breaks our covenant with God and justifies God's wrath coming to us. All sin sends us to eternal damnation and needs to be repented of. But when we think about the negative impact in the temporal, meaning not eternal, as well as the negative impact on the horizontal plane in terms of relationships, human relationships, the Bible is clear that there's different levels to sin. Justin went through this a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to do it again here. But from this text, we can see that there are different levels of debauchery in the eyes of God. Paul doesn't just pick some random sin here. He has a purpose with using homosexuality. What's that? Remember, Paul is taking us through a progression. People suppress the truth and unrighteousness, so even though they know the truth about God, they choose not to honor him as God or give him thanks. See that as idolatry. This leads to God giving them up to the lust of their hearts which was sexual impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies. The dishonoring came from this dishonorable passions, right? So first we have idolatry, then we have immorality. So what Paul is showing us here is when you reject God, when we reject God individually, when we reject God as a society, he rejects you. Not just the individual, he rejects a society. And when he rejects us and leaves us to our heart's desires, things go downhill. They degrade. They get ugly. They get vile. They get wicked. We could say they get flipped on their head, upside down. And the prime example of that degradation, according to Paul here, of being upside down is when our hearts have homosexual passions and when our bodies engage in homosexual acts and our minds justify it and we support it or even worse, celebrate it. That's what he's getting at here. Now, I know that might be heavy to hear. It's heavy for me to say. But it's what Paul is telling us. When you look at a people, when you look at a society, and you take an evaluation of how far they've fallen off the path of wisdom, the path of righteousness, 
a significant marker that Paul gives us here to make that evaluation is whether or not homosexuality is present, accepted, and promoted. If it is, then you know the society is very far down the hill of God's abandonment. Why is that the case? Why is this the best example that Paul could use? Because it's unnatural. That's what we see in these verses. It says, contrary to nature. Natural here means the way God designed it. It's God's way. So not only against his design, like other forms of sexual immorality, which is any, any participation in sexual things outside the marriage between a man and a woman, but even at the physical level, it's unnatural. Now, I know more and more school districts around the country disagree with that. Therefore, they teach same-sex education in their sex ed, ed classes as perfectly natural. But thankfully, they aren't the authority for the Christian, and they shouldn't be. The Bible is that authority, and the Bible should be. Homosexuality is a shameless sin like Paul calls it here, that if committed, is not just going to be judged by God one day. It is God's judgment. You don't see it in a culture, especially as loud as it is in ours, unless that culture has been abandoned by God. We can't ignore this. Before we move on, here's a question, probably the question that you maybe are thinking, How's our society doing with that evaluation I mentioned before? We should know that answer very clearly, being that it's the month of June. Pride Month. Rainbow flags in our neighborhoods, lining the streets of our downtowns, all over social media. The majority of commercials you see now have some sort of homosexual reference. Even churches making plans this month to celebrate and promote what Paul calls shameless. Hear this, please. Paul calls this sin shameless, not to mock people. Not to mock people who struggle with this sin, but rather to speak to their sin honestly in order to drive them to Christ who can save them from that sin. Pastor Toby Sumter comments that this is the grace of shame. Shame for our sin teaches us to hate our sin and to love our Savior. That can happen for people in this sin. 1 Corinthians, another letter from Paul, tells us that. It mentions homosexuality in a list of sins that lead to not inheriting the kingdom of God. Then Paul says, such were some of you. Meaning some of the saints in the Corinthian church were in this sin, but they were washed clean of it. They were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's our prayer. I hope it's our prayer for everyone and anyone who is in this sin. But our culture doesn't want that. Our culture fails that evaluation, doesn't it? Church, two things need to happen in response to where we're at currently in our society. This is what I meant by being offensive against it. We need to bring the gospel to these people. We need to advance the kingdom of God into that community, not shy away from it. But first, we need to repent ourselves. Repent of our lack of hatred for our own sins, lack of confession of our own sins, lack of turning from our own sins and picking up our cross daily and following Christ. 
There's this passage in Ezekiel where the prophet tells Jerusalem that their sin is worse than that of Sodom. That's very interesting. If you know the story of Sodom, God judges the city of Sodom after there was an incident where men wanted to rape a couple of angels that were sent down from the Lord to speak to Lot. That's in the Bible. The men in that city had homosexual desires and passions and acted on those passions. This is where we get the term sodomy or sodomite. So many people think, and they're right, that God's judgment was brought down on Sodom because of the sin of sodomy, sexual perversion that is contrary to nature. But if we look at Ezekiel's words, we get more of the picture. We get more of the story. He says that the city was judged, completely eliminated, other than Lot and his family, because not only sodomy, but look at what comes first. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 and 50. It says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Pride, excess of stuff, prosperous ease, did not look out for the less fortunate, and they were arrogant. Does this sound like America to you? Including us and the churches in America? Prideful, arrogant, not looking out for the less fortunate, excess of stuff, prosperous ease, So Sodom was judged because of the abomination of homosexual acts, but prior to those acts, the city had already fallen into immorality. Why did they fall into immorality? Because again, idolatry leads to immorality. The city started worshiping another God other than the one true and living God, so they fell into more and more immorality. Lack of turning from that sin, in a sense, is what led to this last straw of sodomy, which brought down the judgments of God. Church, if we are going to call this community, this homosexual community, to repentance, we better not avoid the logs that are in our own eyes first. Then from there, after we deal with our own hearts and are freed through the forgiveness that comes from Christ, then we can repent of our lack of hatred for the sin of homosexuality and for our lack of love for the people who struggle with it and pursue the discipleship of that community. I know that's hard to do. It's much easier to ignore it and just shake our head at the shameless things that go on or in some way, shape, or form support them going on. But if we love God, if we love his creation, if we love these people, we will engage in discipleship with that community. They're growing by the day. They're even discipling our children through literature and schools, Disney movies, drag queen story hours, and many other means. They are working harder than us. They seem to have more passion and are louder about their agenda than Christians are about the kingdom of God moving forward. How is the church going to respond? By choosing love? I seen that on a billboard the other day. 
with a rainbow behind it. The world doesn't need more love, especially if by love we just mean letting people alone to live however they want. The world needs Jesus. The world needs God's will. The world needs Christ's kingdom to come just as it is in heaven. Are we at least praying for that, like Christ has taught us to do on a daily basis because we need it? The rest of the chapter magnifies the need for that prayer. Paul continues with this degradation, with this downhill slide into moral depravity. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So we see it again for the third time, God giving these people up. And I just want to clarify again, Paul is talking about a people. He's talking about a culture. This is group language. Did everyone in this culture suppress the truth and unrighteousness? No, God chose some people. He chose a remnant to take out of the society. Did everyone end up falling into homosexual sin? No, it was just an example to articulate how low a people could go in their moral depravity. But we learn here, as sin continues to progress, and then through these people, and God eventually gives them up to a debased mind. So we see their hearts in verse 24. We have seen their bodies in verse 26 and 27. And now we see the mind. What he's speaking of here is the minds of people who have fallen into this much moral depravity eventually become so warped in their minds that they can't even make sane or moral ethical decisions anymore. We probably can think of our own list of issues that we see in the world, but Paul has his own list of some more examples of their depravity. Now this isn't an exhaustive list, it's a representative list. It's a summary of their total depravity. It's literally a list that describes a society that has died. A society that is so far down the death spiral that they are at the bottom of the outhouse. The bottom of the porter potty. Remember, these people reject God and his Christ, so what do they get? Chaos. Societies, nations have to come under the lordship of Christ or they will have chaos. What does that chaos look like? You may ask, verse 29 through 31. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This list is broken up into four sections. Section one, we see were filled with all manner of. Filled with means they were dominated by. They were under control of, in the grip of. All manner of shows the total depravity, right? It's not just partial evil. It's not just partial covetousness. Unrighteousness means anything unlawful. Evil means a scheming to do wickedness. Covetousness is an evil discontent for something more, wanting what other people have, insatiable desire for more. Malice is a desire to injure others in order to get what they want, stepping on people, running them over because of greed. Sound American yet? The second section starts with them being full of, which means these things are overflowing from their heart. They can't be contained. They have to be lived out. They have to be acted on. Envy means jealousy. Murder, they were killing. They were willing to kill people for their selfish desires. Any of that going on. We have women celebrating killing their own babies. Many of them so that they can keep their job, so that they can make more money. 
And the man who's involved in making that baby just sits there and allows it to happen. Statistically speaking, the most dangerous place for a baby in this country is a healthcare facility. Strife means contentious, quarreling, arguing, bickering about everything. Deceit here means they were willing to try to beguile others so that they could get ahead of the game. Think American politicians. Maliciousness is a malignant hatred for others that just continues to increase. Sounds like social media. The third section, gossips, isn't just a small conversation behind people's backs. It's more like conspiracy claims, plotting and scheming behind the scenes and keeping things in the dark. Think COVID response. Slanders means deliberate defamation of others. Think cancel culture or some in the Me Too movement. Haters of God, these would be people who shake their fist at God with high-handed sins. Think stealing the sign of the covenant God made with Noah, which was the rainbow, and making it your symbol to celebrate something God hates. Insulin means violently insulting others. Haughty means to raise yourself up above others, to have an overwhelming sense of self, self-entitlement, self-autonomy, self-centeredness, boastful, pontificating your own greatness. Inventors of evil, these people took evil to a whole new level, started things that normally would be unimaginable. Think parents who withhold truth from their children by not telling them what gender they are, instead wait for the kid to decide. Disobedient to parents, this is speaking of no regard for authority at all, which was learned in the home. When submission to parents is taken away, it sets the course for rebellion and anarchy in society that knows no limits. Think riots in the streets and burning down of buildings. The last section is a list of things they lack. Foolish means lack of understanding. They have lost their decision-making capability, which translates to making immoral and insane decisions. Thanks transgender bathroom rights. A friend of mine told me a story about his workplace where a man had multiple sexual harassment complaints against him, which was going to lead to his removal from the company. He found out about it, so the next day he came to work dressed like a woman, and he claimed that he was a woman now. This led to the company choosing not to fire him because they didn't want to discriminate against the oppressed community of transgenders. Insanity. What made this story even more wild is the way that one of the women who had a sexual harassment complaint against this man found out that he wasn't fired by running into him in the bathroom. We've lost the capability of making sane decisions. Faithless means lack of trustworthiness. They are covenant breakers, willing to break business covenants, marriage covenants. The divorce rate is over 50% in our society. The word, their word means nothing. All they care about is expediency. Heartless and ruthless overlap and mean unloving, uncharitable, they lack mercy, have no compassion for those who are vulnerable or in misery. There's no regard for the good of others. All that matters is self. This describes a society that is in ruins. It describes a society that's been de-Christianized, that's been abandoned by God. This happened to Jerusalem. This happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. This happened to the Roman Empire. And it's pretty clear that it's happening to our society. But wait, it gets worse. We should be saying, how in the world could it get worse? Verse 32. 
Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, the death here is not temporal death, but eternal death. They know that they deserve eternal damnation of God. But notice that they not only do all of these things, these sinful things, but they also give their approval to those who practice them. They celebrate it. They applaud it. It's no longer in the closet. It's strutting down Main Street. This shows us the destructiveness and how far-reaching sin can be. When God gives up a society, sin builds upon sin, which builds upon sin. There's this chain reaction that goes on. Sin grows and sinners multiply, and the next generation becomes worse than the previous. What was once unacceptable in the culture becomes worse becomes a window, once they get a window of acceptance, then the generation down the road is so totally ingrained in that society that the person that speaks out against, excuse me, speaks out against it is the extreme one. Church, this is where we're at. I hate having to give all these examples. But right now, Disney is currently at war with the state of Florida for teachers not being able to talk to kids about sex until the fourth grade. Disney's on one side of this because they want it earlier than the fourth grade. And the other side is celebrating that the law passed. Talking to kids about sex in the fourth grade is a victory somehow. That's how bad it's become. If we could take a second to get away from the busyness of our lives and actually think about the state of our society, it's pretty clear that this is where we're at. And it's heartbreaking. And I hope that's all the bad news that I have. Because you would think that when this happens to a society, that there's no hope. Right? How in the world could we be saved from something like that? Well, if you think that, you're actually, in one sense, not too far off. Because there's not many hopes We don't have a bunch of different options to choose from. We can't just go picket City Hall. We can't just go lobby our politicians. We can't just get to vote the right person in. And I'm for all of those things for helping the society look more Christian. But that's showing up with a knife to a gunfight. There's only one thing that can do anything at all about this. What this society needs is what Thomas Chalmers calls an expulsive power of a new affection. That's the only hope we have. The people in our society need new hearts. They need a new God. Like we sang, they need the God who died, right? But he didn't just die, he came back to life. Now everything has changed. They need a righteousness that is not their own. They need King Jesus to give them that righteousness. Paul tells us later in this letter, one can't believe upon Christ if they never hear about Christ. And one can't hear about Christ unless someone preaches. That's the answer. That's the only answer we have. Proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ to our society. So what's that mean for us? What do we do? Application. Four things and then I'm done. Sorry. Number one, be amazed. Be blown away. Literally, as dark as everything I went through, everything I went through is not us 
as Christians because God intervened. He intervened to pull us out of it. He intervenes to keep us out of it. He intervened to forgive us for it when we were in it. He's intervened to make us hate it and to fight against it. So be in awe and gratitude for where he has you this morning, Christian. Number two, we already touched on it, repent. Search your heart today. Where are there still signs of these vices that we went through? Where do you struggle and how are you fighting against these things? Are you intentional about that fight? Number three, faith. Believe the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. Remember that you are loved and you are saved and you are forgiven and you are free to now go and live from that and enjoy living in this society under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Number four, disciple the nations. We don't live in this society to sit idly by while Christ is mocked and dishonored and people are left in their slavery to whatever sin they are in and whatever God they are imprisoned to. We are here to be salt and light. We are here as a remnant of God's chosen people that were chosen in him for good works. We are here to be fruitful and multiply. That's physical progeny through getting married and having babies and raising those children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but it's also spiritual progeny through evangelism and discipleship. Bring Christ to the world. Let them know who the king is and how good of a king he is. That's my prayer for us, that we would leave here today with those four things, that we would fight together for them, be unified in applying them, regardless of what comes at us, regardless of how much worse the society gets, regardless of how many issues come up in this church or in our personal lives, may God bless us as we fight to stay on that path. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we once again thank you. Lord, it's, it's something that we um, never can thank you enough for, that we are not one of those people of the society that we learned about today. Lord, and the only reason that that's the case is because you've chosen us and you've taken us from that life. Lord, you've taken us from that life so that we can choose life, so that we can choose you and your ways, Lord. But we still struggle with that. We still struggle with going after the things that are lesser than you. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see those things. Lord, that you would give us a mind and a heart to see them. And when we're not living in your ways, Lord, that we would be able to turn from them. Lord, we'd be able to bring those things out into the light. We'd be able to confess them with our mouth. Lord, we'd be able to repent. Lord, and if we would move to faith, we would believe the gospel that you've forgiven us of them, Lord, that we've been washed clean by the blood of Christ. Lord, and then from there, Lord, fill us up with that. Let us be so blown away by that. Let us be so charged up by that that we would go out into the world and we would share you with other people. Lord, we would proclaim your name, that we would proclaim that your name is above every other name, that you're good, that you're gracious, that you're merciful, that you have power to save, not just individual peoples, but you can change everything in this life. Help us to believe that this morning, Lord, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.